First You Think is a not-for-profit ministry of the First Unitarian Church of Des Moines. Support us at ucdsm.org today. If our lives were already calm and clear, says Pico Iyer, a writer and cultural observer, we wouldn't need churches at all. Buddha and Jesus and the saints never need to go to church. They carry one inside themselves. These churches are emergency rooms for the soul, he says. The one place, or one of several maybe, where we can reliably go to find out who we are and what we should be doing with our lives, usually by finding out all that we aren't and all that is greater than us, to which we can only give ourselves away. A church may be where we hear something and nothing, our own breath and everybody else's, a silence that is not an absence of noise, but the presence of something deep, the depth beneath our thoughts. One time when I led a class on prayer for Unitarian Universalists, one of the participants sent me an email, which I saved because it moved me so, and I asked if I could share it, and he said yes, and I have many times. He said, he, well, he had been part of the church for a long time, but it was clear in his writing he still felt like a visitor. He said, um, I admire everything about the social ethics of UUs. They seem to be on the side of everything I want to endorse. Their tolerance makes me stretch and open. Their gifts of self and service are almost unimaginably inclusive. But still, when I enter most UU churches, including ours, I am not immediately mindful of spiritual space, nor of the silence necessary to hear the still small voice. I'm in the presence of good company, surely, loving people, greeting each other. But such an encounter could, in my experience, also conceivably occur at a concert or a club or a lecture or a caucus of concerned citizens for any worthy cause. I realize I was raised on Calvinist apocalypse. And while doctrinally I'll never go back, I miss some of that spiritual intensity. I would like to come into church to sit for a moment in silence or meditate on a passage printed in the bulletin or listen to music or softly sing. Lovely and large-hearted as they are, I'd like to begin by not greeting my neighbors. I'll greet them afterwards. I'd like to greet something inside first. So in that same congregation, where that guy was, was a woman who'd been there many years, not a noisy person, but one who was pretty loud in her dislike of silence on Sunday mornings. That is not what we're paying you for, she said. <laughs> when we introduced a time of meditation every week, the briefest eye blink of silence, just like here, it's like a splinter of a plank of driftwood that we can cling to in the turbulent water of our crazy days, the slenderest sliver of quiet. We're not paying you not to talk, she said. I can be quiet by myself at home or by turning down the volume, which she frequently did on her hearing aid if she didn't like the sermon or whatever. Deliberate silence 
seemed to her a total waste of time. So she sat every Sunday in the front row and she had three watches on her arm, all analog and all set to the time zones where her grown children were now living. And as the meditation began, she'd hold up her arm, not in a holy way of, you know, but, and she would tap her wrist right there, timing the seconds when nothing worthwhile was happening. After one minute, she'd raise an eyebrow, after two minutes, she'd clear her throat or blow her nose or drop her hymnal on the stone floor by accident. Silence is not the only way in. Meditation, reflection, contemplation, prayer, they're not the only doors to the interior life, not the only way into the hidden chambers of the heart or the recesses of the mind where our memories are kept like scattered drifts of dust beneath a bed and conclusions are drawn and creative ideas incubated in the dark subconscious. Silence is not the only way into the deepest core of your being, which strangely is the part of you that connects most authentically to everybody else and everything else, even to the holy. It's so strange. We have to go inward in order to reach out with integrity and clarity and courage and love to others. Silence is not the only way into the soul, but it is one way. And we practice it on Sundays, even a little to remember that we are more than the sum of our opinions and our fears and our intentions and our words and ideas. We breathe in and remember even fleetingly as the air fills the lung that we're embodied. We exist as bodies here. We're made of water and air, fully mortal, just brief here. So we breathe in and acknowledge the body. We breathe out and remember the spirit the spark, the light, the ember of divinity that's present at our birth, and it's burning still, just the same, inside. Breathing in, out, we come back to what we are, or at least we let go of the reins for a single blessed moment, let go of the will and the worry and the wanting and the endlessly wanting for just a second. We just breathe. It's our whole work. And to do so together is a holy communion. For the person who wrote me that email, it was, but for the fellow congregant with the three watches, it was excruciating. She was an engineer, a pragmatist, a lover of scheduled efficiency, complex problems with straightforward solutions. And she was for a time, of course, the church treasurer, everything, right? Spreadsheet. And for another time, the chair of the social action committee, busy, effective, task-oriented. And she was also a lover of music. And when the organ filled that church with sound or a string quartet or a single oboe pierced us or a gospel choir came and stomped and shook the house, she was in a kind of reverie. She clearly had her own ways into the life of the spirit, as each of us does. She knew how to get there and how to go deep and shut her eyes and let the music or maybe the readings just wash over her brow and smooth out the tension. She was a person not afraid to cry in church, to let the tears just fall. And I wondered when I saw that about those three grown children in their faraway time zones and her partner who had died and how she lived all by herself. She didn't need any more quiet. 
She knew how to go deep, how to get where she needed to go, and she knew how to come back to us restored. There are, within this hour that we share, a thousand ways to pray. In all the other hours, on all the other days, we are driven mostly to distraction by 10,000 large and little things, demanding and enticing things, seductive, mind-numbing, dutiful things, night terrors, regrets, fears justified and foolish, work things, play things, electronic things. It takes such discipline to be still, to be quiet, to listen to no sound, to be non-productive, inefficient, slothful prayerful, reverent, ready for nothing. When the house is clean, I say. When the steps are swept, the dishes done, inbox empty, laundry folded, put away, work all done, work begun, the jack-o'-lantern scraped from its puddle on the porch, except now it's frozen, so I can't. When that's done, then I'll take a cleansing breath because then I will have earned it. I'll deserve it which is Calvinism. I will come to prayer again, make the space to make amends and repent and rejoice and repair and repeat and forgive somebody's trespasses, maybe starting with mine, praise the day, bend the knee, bow my head, center down, pay attention, pay respect, light my candles, walk outside. Not yet, but soon, I promise I'm going to do it. But the only trouble with promising is I could be really old by then or dead or something else. The harder work always for us is to leave the dishes and the duty to not die before we wake up. Howard Thurman was a 20th century African-American theologian. He founded the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples in San Francisco, a progressive, pluralistic community of white and black members. He was an activist, an agent of change, effective in the world, powerful, political. And he was also sometimes not. He was a mystic and a poet, contemplative. In a newsletter for his people, he wrote how good it is to center down, to sit quietly and see oneself pass by. The streets of our minds seethe with endless traffic while something deep within hungers and is thirsting. We look at ourselves, the kinds of people we are. The questions persist. What are we doing with our lives? What are the motives that order our days? What is the end of all this doing? What are we trying to go? Where do we put the emphasis and where are we focused? Where's our treasure? What do we love most? To what are we true? Floating up through all the jangles of turbulence, there's a sound of another kind, he said, a deeper note which only the stillness of the heart makes clear. I have a December memory that comes to me at this time of year, especially if there's snow. It's like a Christmas card or an old ornament. You hold it in your hand, and it's like a time machine. It transports you back to a universe that's so far from where you are right now, but it's so familiar. You can feel the scratchy wool and smell the mothball mittens. In this memory, my father and I are all bundled up. And together, after supper, very late at night, probably around 
We are going for a walk outside, just the two of us. And I am maybe five or six years old, and we're going to look at all the holiday lights in our neighborhood, and it is magical. Everything is silent because of the snow on the ground and the snow shawling down, and it's silent also because I'm hermetically sealed in a hat and hood and scarf, and there are no cars. So we're walking down the middle of this wide, white corridor of street with no footprints, and there are colored lights all the way down on both sides. And every house is like a silent diorama with a menorah in the window or a Christmas tree and people moving around in their kitchens and living rooms playing the piano or watching TV. They're like life-size dolls in dollhouses. And it's absolutely silent except for the scrunching of snow pants, which I only notice when we stop to eat snow or count the reindeer plastic on somebody's roof. We stood in an ocean of quiet, hand in hand, very tall, very small, not talking for miles and miles, hours and hours, about 20 minutes around the block. It was like owl moon in the city. All these years later, all this life later, when I feel myself being sucked into the vortex of holidays, the stress and noise and cheesy music and white knuckle driving and my requisite worries all the time about money, family, losses, love, this memory comes back. And it's not just a snapshot. It's this visceral trace of wonder that I felt as a child, the coldest cold, thickest snow, my father fully present, which normally he wasn't and all the snug houses and their lights. So it's a simple thing, a walk around the block. And I don't know if it happened just one time or lots of times, but I know it set in me a longing in December that has nothing to do with Christology or shopping. And if I can remember to remember it and dwell inside it, it centers me and reminds me that what I love at this time of year and what I need is a cold night, very dark, a little snow, and maybe someone to go walking with. If you've seen the snow, says the poet, if you've gone out in it for only the pleasure of walking barely protected from the galaxies, the splakes settling on your parka like the dust from just-born stars, the cold waking you as if from long sleeping, then you've seen the transience of beauty. And you can understand how more often than not, truth is found in silence. We remember there what we are, which is not perfect, but wholly human in both senses of the word, holy, holy. The entire motion of Advent in the Christian calendar is toward remembering and waiting, not for a single mythical child, but for the quiet conviction, this confession that each life is a fleeting gift, each life including your own. For that conviction to truly take root, to find words to give voice to that confession and live it out in the world, you have to be willing to travel through a lot of darkness and quiet. You have to listen with the beat of your heart and let it be the loudest thing you ever hear. We apprehend the holy, said Huxley, in the spaces in between, in the voids as well as the fullness of a cathedral, in the space between the notes 
of music, and therefore on the plane of conduct in the love and gentleness, the confidence and humility, which give beauty to the relationship between human beings. Silence is a spiritual practice, and it is an ethical decision. So we find the holy in the quiet intervals and pauses. It's also where our own most honest voice resounds long before we're ready for prime time. We also know, and we need constant reminding, the only way to hear somebody else, the only way to behold and honor and uh, acknowledge the worth and loveliness of somebody else, the living holy scripture that someone else is, is to shut up and let them talk. Make space to amplify all their stories, all their words, all their breath that's not our own. And over the past six weeks, I've been seeing and hearing you do exactly this in the community conversations hosted by your board. The silence you've held in listening to each other is as sacred as the speaking. The space between two voices is where all the hope is. This past Thursday was World AIDS Day. And driving down here from St. Paul, I listened to interviews with survivors of the AIDS epidemic from all over the world. And I thought about how silence is actually a substance best used in moderation. The great rallying cry of the movement to make visible and loud the devastations of HIV, the cry that was coined first by gay men in the 1980s when nobody was listening, and still resounding now among queer and trans and gender nonconforming people, that cry is silence equals death. And so we remember, silence is a spiritual practice and an ethical requirement only when it's balanced by speaking. We go within, in prayer and meditation, in order to come out, to bring to full volume the force of our conviction, to make some noise when noise is what's called for. If you see something, say something. You find your truth in listening to your heart, to your God, to the stories that are trusted to you by other people, a holy offering. And then you bring your inside voice outside. The chorus of our shared voices, it shakes the foundations of the world, it blesses the world, changes it. Silence is a practice. It's not a permanent condition. There's a time for keeping quiet, and there is a time for shattering complacency, complicity with this mighty, righteous, raucous sound. I'm thinking of Iran this past fall, and still hundreds of thousands of women and their allies risking their lives to break silence. That kind of courage comes from deep within, the heart of a person, the heart of a people. I'm thinking of China, where in the cities and in all these little rural towns, people are in the streets right now. They're singing and chanting and shouting in all of these ironic, creative, sarcastic, clever, beautiful ways, risking their lives to do what? Break silence, to break the stranglehold of a paranoid regime. They're in digital spaces loudly, by the millions, sabotaging, brilliantly subverting all the algorithms of online surveillance and censorship and shutdown. Zhao Xiang, a researcher on internet freedom, said this week in the New York Times, this is a decisive breach of the big silence that is China. It is the sound 
of the inside voice rising not from shallow opinion, but from the depths of the spirit. We go within in order to come out again, like hibernating bears, or like those little moles and mice who burrow underground all winter and they slow their heartbeats to just a few per minute, dreaming through the winter about scurrying around in the spring. Breathing in, breathing out, even for just this fleeting moment on a Sunday or any day, we're listening for the breath of God, the breath of conscience. And we restore the soul and then repair the world over and over, round and round, again and again, without ceasing. We are here to pray without ceasing. In just a moment, we'll hold silence together. (laughs) 